0: Alright, thanks guys. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and if you're visiting as uh, the other Chris, another one of our elders and staffers here this morning, Chris Thompson, said, uh, welcome to you especially. Glad you guys are with us. Uh, We are right now uh, in a series. uh, Like a lot of churches throughout history, we value preaching. We value hearing from God, from from His Word, from the Bible, and so this is a time of our service that we give over to that. Uh, It's a very central part uh, to it, and so as we we say a lot here, it's we're, and as I'll, I'll actually recap this in a variety of ways throughout today because it's a good passage for this. But uh, it is the Bible is theological history. Uh, it's not just something that occurred; it's something that, that that occurred so that God might speak to us through it. And so when we read it, then we're reading something that happened, but we're reading something that happened so that it might be for our benefit. It might be something that God says, uh, "You're like this person," or God is God is like this to you as well. Here and this whole story is about. Uh, redemption and coming back to God. And like that song just said, returning to him, which is a big theme from today as well. So we're in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, which uh, Genesis means beginnings, uh, kind of hence the name. And so if you want to turn there, uh, that'd be great. in a Bible you have, or a pew Bible, against the first book of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible, uh, pretty easy to find, uh, or your devices, that would be great. We'll uh, read from Genesis 23. I think I, I put in the inserts, page 16, I believe, in the pew Bibles. But A couple of things by means of recap here, just for a second. Uh, Peter said this, we're going to look at Sarah's death and burial today, uh, which takes up the whole chapter. Sarah is Abraham's wife, so if you're just joining us, Abraham is uh, one of the main characters of the book of Genesis. Most of the book is given over to him, his story, uh, how God loves him, surprisingly, not because he's a good guy, he's a sinner, worshiping idols, with back turned to God, but God uh, gets in his face and kind of taps him on the shoulder, gets in his face and says, I'm calling you to a new land. Come, be with me where I am. And so he travels up the Fertile Crescent, uh, north and down along the eastern side of the Mediterranean to a place that will be later, be, later be called Israel, but uh, as it's called today in today's passage and has been the land of Canaan, is this promised land. God promised to give this new place to him. It's a place where he chose to dwell symbolically. God is everywhere. But he said, I'm specially here. And so, as we've been saying, Abraham and Sarah's journey then is paradigmatic of ours as Christians, of all who have believed the gospel throughout history. It's, it's, it's a glimpse of what happens spiritually when people hear the voice of God, call to them through the cross and the empty tomb, and say, I believe that God has saved me there. I believe that that's sufficient to bring me back to him. And, and what happens then is we return to God through that. We return to the land, figuratively speaking, uh, spiritually speaking, of the gospel of God's presence Uh, as if we got back into Eden if you know the beginning of Genesis the Garden of Eden is the first place God kind of plants a garden and places the first human beings there their sin exiles them and kind of the human race with them all of us with them from God's presence and so God works in land kinds of ways when he calls people to land uh, it's hope is kindled it's it's a it's kind of a it's a glimpse that well maybe because we're humans too we're sinners too, we too are exiled from God, that maybe he'll bring us back to himself as well just on a much greater scale than the geographical scale on, on the spiritual, spiritual scale. So anyway, so that's a short recap of Abraham and Sarah. The, like I was saying, the, the big chunk of Genesis is given over to that story and then some things that happen with them, how God promises to bless them even though they didn't earn it or do anything to earn it uh, or turn God's head. They're sinners like us. And so God promises to bless them in a cursed world, and so they become emblematic of us, but, um, but also Christ. Their, their stories point ahead to Jesus. It, this is all about Christ just ahead of time. And so we've been seeing that, uh, that play out here as well. Uh, so today, though, is kind of an interesting passage. It's, uh, you might read this and think, even today as I read this, you might think, does that have to be in the Bible? And of course, the answer to that is always yes, because God intended it. Um, but this is one of those that could, you know, you could maybe skip as you're reading it, and um, you'd feel like you weren't missing a lot. But there, there is uh, quite a bit, quite a bit here. Um, one other aside here as well, as we talk about death and burial, and again, we'll read this and you'll you'll see how it's how it's written. But these types of passages in Genesis and these kinds of, you know, lists of death or kind of descriptions of death happen all throughout the Old Testament, Old Testament narrative. But these types of passages are are good for a lot of things, and we'll see a couple of those big things today. The one thing they do is they remind us that the Bible is history. All of this stuff actually happened here. Uh, It's not the stuff of myths. Real people with real names living in real cities, many of which still exist today, A book of genealogy, so long list of real people with real names with specific dates for how long they lived and what their children's name were, sons and daughters and so forth when they died. And even like today's passage, long accounts of their death and burial, all those things do not arise in mythology. If you've read mythology, you know this, at least to this extent. The Bible is not mythology that actually occurred. And there's tons of hope in that for us if we are human beings too. And you got speaking to speak into human beings here today. Human beings, like the human beings we're reading in this book, we're sinners like them and the same God who promised blessing to them in their sinful state promises blessing to us in our sinful state, ultimately through Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. And so the Bible, we say this a lot, the Bi- and I actually probably said this this morning too already, the Bible is not just history, it's theological history history. And so passages like this, there's a lot more to say. This is not the main part of this or anything, but an important aside for those of you who are, um, well for all of us, but for those of you maybe especially that are just starting to read the Bible maybe for the first time or wondering about that issue. Does this have to be true uh, to be important? And and the answer is yeah, it it does. History history and truth are very tied together. And if it's not real, it brings into serious question how much it can really impact us. And uh, if, if this is this, if this God is real, maybe the people aren't, well then, is the God, is, is, does God actually say these things in history? Did he actually move this way? Did he actually make these promises? And it's a really fast slippery slope to uh, treating this just as um, a book of myths that maybe at best, that was pretty cool. I'd like to read that again, you know, like your favorite story about Zeus or Hermes or whatever. But uh, th- this is actually um, history. God is a God of history. He came into history, became a person, through his son, Jesus Christ, walked around, taught, performed miracles, ultimately walked that road to Calvary and died for us, actually died among actual criminals like us, absorbing actual sins like, like our sins. And he actually walked out of that tomb three days later, which um, for dead people like us, that's pretty encouraging. If we're dead <laughs> or if we're going to die, and if we're spiritually dead now, uh, that means everything. That means the world. So um, anyway, that was free. The rest will cost you. Just kidding. Um, but that wasn't aside. Let's go back to Genesis 23, verse uh, 1 to 20. It's the whole chapter. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing, and we'll take it all in, and then we'll come back and make a couple of comments about it. All right, verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. "'In the sight of my sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead.' Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, "'and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, "'But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. "'Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there.' "'Ephron answered Abraham, "'My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, "'what is that between you and me? Bury your dead.' Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah was, or which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city." After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. All right, so like we like to say sometimes, basically preaches itself, right? Let's just be done. That's uh, obvious, not really. All right, so let me recap this. Um, Basically, this story has to do with Sarah's death, of course, we've been saying that, but it also has to do with Abraham's sadness and Abraham buying land from a Hittite named Ephron, which is in the land of Canaan. So, just a map here to remind you kind of where we're at. So, this is where Abraham grew up and Sarah. This is where they journeyed up the Fertile Crescent area, up north and down over this area, the eastern side of the Mediterranean. This will become Israel, of course, later in the story. Uh, this is uh, Salem, which is later called Jerusalem, but um, Hebron is right here. It's kind of where the story is taking place. Um, but it's in the land of Canaan. So we've been saying that's an important that's an important land. Um, I want to make sure you know that, that it's not on the like southern fringe, like it's outside of it. It actually is uh, inside um, yeah, the land. And so uh, Abraham, though, is calling himself here in this story in the early verses. He said, a sojourner and a foreigner, which again reminds us that he's not from there. He's from Ur of the Chaldeans over in uh, the Babylonia, what would later be the Babylonian region uh, there. And he was just, so he was just called there by God and was promised it to be an inheritance for his descendants. And so the fact that Abraham buys land here, at this point, uh, it's not super necessarily, but he doesn't own any of the land. He's, he's been promised it by God, but he doesn't own any of it. So, God actually says, I'm going to give it to your descendants primarily, but for you, you'll be a sojourner and a foreigner. There's these Hittites and and Canaanites and other types of people groups in there. It's actually not going to be for hundreds of more years after Israel as kind of a nation uh, exoduses out of Egypt. They, They are slaves there for 400 years. They exodus out, then they entered land. It's not until then it actually becomes their land. And God fully drives out the people, the evil nations, before them and gives them the land. Here, there's they're just sojourners, and his descendants, immediate descendants, Abrahams, are kind of sojourners as well. They, they're, you know, kind of butting up a little bit with these other nations and peoples and, be, and befriending them and um, burying their dead among them and things like this. And so, but, so I say that as context to show that it is significant here that it, it does guarantee the fact that he buys this field and doesn't take up Ephron's initial offer for free. Where Ephron here says, actually, I'll give it to you for free. Abraham says, no, I'm going to give you 400 shekels for it. That's significant because he's actually purchasing a part of this land. It guarantees that it's his and uh, to his posterity, to his descendants indefinitely. So, you know, no one could just kind of take it away later on. So what that tells us is God is starting to fulfill his promise. He's actually giving this land to them. They're actually becoming owners. They're part owners now, and so it's foggy here. Uh, Later on, he's going to give the entirety of the land when Israel enters uh, through uh, the Jordan uh, hundreds of years from now and uh, takes, out, takes over Jericho and other cities uh, as well, if you know that story. So again, God is fulfilling his promise and he's starting to give this land to, uh, to Abraham. So um, a, a lot of this is kind of just given over to that. God keeps promises. That's a big thing we've been seeing so far in this, in this book. All right. A couple of big theological ideas here, though, I want to go over today. And you can follow along in the inserts if you want. I kind of like to uh, think, you know, uh, structurally about a passage like this. So the first is uh, that, the first is actually kind of a lest we miss the obvious one. <laughs> and then move on to the, the maybe um, uh, not so obvious one after that. So I have two big things today. So the lest we miss the obvious one is Sarah, a hero of the faith, dies. This theme of, of death reigning, so verse 2, again, kind of sitting in the obvious here, just says, and Sarah died. If, if you're here for our, um, I think actually Spencer preached this passage, but our uh, exposition of chapter 5, which is the first genealogy of the Bible, uh, after each section of, you know, so-and-so uh, grew up and had sons and daughters and lived so many years, and remember how each paragraph ends, and then so-and-so died after each one of those little paragraphs and so it's just one of the theological elements to that genealogy is to kind of say over and over again that people die and they die again and they keep dying over and over and over and over again. There's one exception which is um, uh, why it's so theologically rich is to say that someone didn't die and it's a hint that God's going to overcome death um, there too and so we we looked, uh, Enoch was the guy, looked at him but anyway, so it's kind of like that. It's the same language, actually. And Sarah died is the same language back in chapter 5. This list of, of people, generations of people that just keep dying. And no matter how long they lived, whether it was, you know, 25 years or people lived longer back then, 950 years, uh, people died. There, there's, death is not, you know, kind of discriminate, you could say, in that sense. People, uh, people die. So big theme in Genesis so far, the idea of death. Rains, no matter who it is so it, it, this is actually a really theological thing that's happening here it might seem like it's a just a passing comment or a passing fact of the passage but it's a, it's a rich theological thing that's that's happening not just an historical account death is unnatural it's a byproduct of sin it's a result of exile from god abraham's weeping here he's lost his wife of, they've been married a long time and so it's a theological thing an emotional thing a thing that's um, is is true for all human beings. And so the fact that it happens though, because if you know the beginning of the book, remember we talked about how death came into the world because of sin and our rebellion against God, this gives credence to God's judgment and the reality of a fallen world. Tears and pain and sickness and death are are reigning in this story, and in our story. I was watching uh, The Lord of the Rings with my son this past week for the first time, which is kind of a big moment for for me. But anyway, just taking some selfies, but didn't think about that, Um, but in that, in Two Towers, it's like when Elrond says to Arwen, his daughter, whether by sword or by the slow decay of time, Aragorn will die. You know, it's just, it's kind of this very truthful but hopeless statement that he makes uh, as this immortal elf, but, you know, speaking about a human being who who dies, no matter when, whether it's in this next battle tomorrow or at some point, the slow decay of time, everyone dies. Death is certain. It's an enemy, the Bible says in the New Testament. It's an enemy to be overcome that only God can overcome. And it's an undercurrent theme as well. And um, so what I think that stories like, what I mean by undercurrent theme is that they help to drive the story forward. So there might be a, a story happening and then death kind of occurs in it. And it might not seem like it's the main point. Maybe it's not even the main point sometimes. But the fact that it happens drives the story forward to... A different kind of resolution that falls outside of it. And so, what I mean by this is, is this: it's a helpful hermeneutical or interpretational principle. If wherever you are with your familiarity with the Bible, is the Bible has many highs that still end with death to show us that those highs are not the end of the story. All over the place this occurs, especially an Old Testament idea. So many peaks, many highs. Many rich moments and events that still end with death and sometimes sin and death to show us that those people, those events, those miraculous works of God are not the end of the story. Something else has to happen to better it or to overcome it. So David slays Goliath and all is right in the world. He becomes king and all is more right in the world. And then he sins grievously by committing murder and adultery and then he dies. And you're kind of left there narratively saying, I thought this was kind of it. I thought he was the guy. He's, he's the greatest king of Israel and all these peaks and, in his life. But he dies and he dies and he dies and he dies and she dies and all these people die. It drives uh, the story the story forward. So, so Sarah then in this story is a bit of a high. She's called a hero of the faith, essentially in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith Sarah received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him God faithful who had promised that she would have a son and so she's a big character she is a woman of faith by no means perfect we've seen this in Genesis but she had a certain trust in God that is to be emulated she believed that God could bring life from death 100 years old and barren but I believe God can overrun that and create life amidst this Death inside my womb, this this nothingness, this barrenness inside my, my womb. She had faith, she trusted, she believed God was good and makes good in his promises, and by faith then she was rewarded, or at least called a woman of faith here. So all of that, and if you know Sarah's story, there's more, but all of that, yet she dies. And again, this tells us Sarah is not the end of the story. This is the undercurrent idea. Sarah and her family. Sarah and her miraculous, God-given ability to have a child at the age of 100. Not the end of the story. And, and so on the bottom here, says again what I mean, is when heroes die, it, it points to the idea that there's something beyond those heroes, something beyond them, some other, and the things that God does to them and for them. Those aren't the ultimate events. So the fact that God overcame barrenness in the way that he did, miracle, but not the greatest of things. Uh, death is death. Still occurs, so it's not salvific. It's not the ultimate thing. Death is still the the undercurrent. It's actually interesting, in the a uh, little bit of a bunny trail here. I wanted to take just for the sake of just for the sake of it. Uh, Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, wonderful book. We preached all the way through it a number of years ago. It's on our website if you're interested. But King Solomon, the son of David, wrote this book, and it has an interesting spin on all this on, on death. Uh, in particular, I'm going to su- summarize a few things here. These are paraphrased for the sake of space here. But basically, a book of kind of like Proverbs or wisdom that uh, uh, look ahead to Christ in different ways and kind of describe the vanity of a fallen world and how God must kind of resolve it and give answer to it. One of the things he says is the good, the bad, human being-wise, and even the animals all have the same destination, death. And he calls this vanity or futility. And then he kind of builds on that and says, the good, good people, are buried right next to the worst of people. And sometimes the good die before the bad. What's up with that? Where's the justice in that? He calls that vanity as well. And so the theological extrapolation from that then is, and is that we can make, that the book of Ecclesiastes makes, is goodness is not, not the answer. If it was, the best of us wouldn't die or at least they would live the longest, most uh, comfortable lives. And so I'm skipping over a few things here, but basically what he's saying is uh, it's another way to look at the vanity and kind of the all-encompassing nature of death. Good and bad people die. And so uh, theologically what we can kind of pull from that, and there are many things, if it was about, if the answer to death was being a good person, good people wouldn't die. Or at least we'd say good people would have the best of lives. God would reward them for their goodness. They would be comfortable. They would have a lot of money. They would probably be the smartest types of people. They would have the most blessing in their lives. But it's exactly the opposite of what we see happen in the world many, many, many times. Good people suffer more than evil people. This is, the theologians call this the retribution principle of the Old Testament. It's all throughout the Proverbs and Solomon wrote that book as well. It's like at the end of his life, this old man is writing just writing these things about the world, saying, "This is what I've seen. Seeking to be really good actually gets you uh, death quicker than, than the evil ones, sometimes and sometimes not. But the answer then he says, is he calls it fearing God. We'd we kind of Christianize that and, and fill that out a bit from a New Testament sense and say, well, the answer is, is not then being good, not that good is." irrelevant or unimportant but the answer is not being good or seeking to not be evil the answer is god the answer is fearing god or the answer is jesus christ who we've said a lot here is the third way kind of between you know paganism and uh, religious morality you know he's saving us from our paganism he's saving us from our evil deeds but also saving us from our uh, tireless goodness uh, done apart from him This is Solomon's wisdom. If goodness was the answer, good people would have it best, and they probably would never die, but they do, and they're buried right next to the worst of people. A terrorist right next to a Mother Teresa figure. They both have the same result. The answer, again, this is driving the story forward, right? For Solomon, this is driving the story forward, no matter how we think. For Solomon, there must be another thing. There must be something to resolve this vain tension. And for him, again, he says, God is the answer. We say it's God's Son, it's Jesus Christ, who is himself the invitation to God. Jesus doesn't say, go and be good. He says, come follow me. He says, come follow me to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. Come follow me to the cross where I'm going to bear the sins of the world. I, the ultimate good person who's suffering the worst of all evils. So you see how Jesus is kind of the answer in that moment? He's resolving tension. Why do good people suffer? Because Jesus, the ultimate good person, suffered more than any other person ever has in the history of the world. That's why the church suffers. That's why good people, uh, good people suffer, especially the church. That's why we're persecuted. So much more to say about that, but just kind of a bunny trail there to show how other parts of the Old Testament kind of raise this death tension, how death comes to all, and the fact that death comes to the good and the bad. It sort of drives the story forward and says, Well, it's not even about goodness, it's not even about morality. It must be about God and him sort of uh, slaying death in our place and overcoming that ultimate problem of of death. Or just to put it this way in kind of maxim form, we need more. We need a a special type of salvation that overcomes death. We need need a resurrection. And that leads me to the second big theological idea uh, here, which... um, is maybe the less obvious, uh, but it is that Sarah was buried in Canaan, the promised land, and not her, not her homeland, or of the Chaldeans. So just to kind of frame this a little bit, um, easy to miss. Remember that map I had up earlier? Um, this would kind of be like Aletha and I you know, going on vacation to South Carolina or something for a month and really enjoying it. And then Aletha dying there, sorry, on, it's just kind of morbid, but um, <laughs> then Aletha dying there, and then me burying her there, rather than bringing her back to Minnesota, or maybe her homeland, West Virginia, like those would be kind of the obvious choices, but, you know, we, we'd have a funeral, invite all of our friends down to South Carolina, kind of, it'd just be strange, right, that'd be, that'd be odd. And obviously, it's not a one-to-one, in that day, it would have been very hard to transport a body so far. Uh, but still, there's a clear shift theologically in focus and gaze for Abraham and Sarah. They really have left a lot behind. And their focus is on the land of Canaan, the promised land that, that God gave them. And Abraham spends a lot of money. 400 shekels were, uh, we don't know exactly how much that was in comparison to today, but it was likely a, a lot of money uh, to spend on a lot of land versus outside the, the land, which may have, been, may have been a lot cheaper. The, uh, the urgency behind being buried in Canaan is actually, I want to skip ahead in the book here a bit to help you see this in another character, Joseph, who will read, it's actually Abraham's great-grandson. We'll read more about him a few months from now as we end the book. There's a lot of Genesis given over to his story. Uh, but it's seen more clearly in him uh, when we see him desire the same thing, uh, to be buried in the land and even to request this strange thing. So in Genesis 50, 25, It says Joseph made the sons of Israel. This is when they're in Egypt, by the way, too. They're not in the land uh, of Canaan. He made the sons of Israel swear, saying, "God will surely visit you." So he's foreseen the Exodus. He's foreseen the fact that God will come there and bring them out of the land back of Egypt, back into Canaan. God will visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. (laughs) So, like everyone wants, right? It's kind of like what? What are you? What are you thinking? Uh, It's just odd. But then Hebrews 11:12 theologizes about this in the New Testament and says, it's actually a faith thing. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions uh, concerning his bones. So uh, again, this, this is all meaning that he asked when the Israelites go home uh, to the land that God promised them, he wanted his bones to be dug up or taken out of the tomb carried with them and be reburied in the land of Canaan. That's, he made them swear this would be the case. It was very important for Joseph to be, uh, to be buried there. And again, Abraham's actions here, buried in Sarah, mimic this more obvious uh, desire. So, so here's the big question. Why, right? Why is this a big deal? Why was it so important to be buried in the land of Canaan, uh, even though it wasn't a homeland, for Abraham, Sarah, or Joseph, and even though it cost a lot of money for Abraham, and even though it required Israelites in Egypt to carry Joseph's bones with them, probably a lot of other stuff to carry, but Joseph's bones with them. Who got that job, by the way, too, right? I thought thought that'd be kind of cool. Who got Joseph's bones? I think it'd be a cool job. But anyway, Joseph's bones with them as they left centuries later. Why was this so important? There's two answers to this. Uh, one is broader, and one spins off that and gets more specific that I think is actually the bigger answer, but the w- one answer is just simply this: because it's where God is. we've been talking about this. Uh, God is everywhere, but remember he has especially chosen to reside in this particular area and to call uh, people to himself and as I was uh, saying theologically for us uh, as as Christians, there's this motif you know as throughout this series we've seen this, how the land motif becomes paradigmatic for our experience. So here the the Old Testament metaphor for how God calls us from exile or the distant lands of our sin uh, that they led us to away from God to a new land where he resides as if we were being called back to the Garden of Eden itself. And so uh, like in the New Testament then you see the land talked about spiritually. Um, It's even actually even the Old Testament first you see um, things like this occur when the prophets speak Uh, God says to Israel, and the context is just fascinating here. Uh, It's after Israel is again exiled, this time in Babylon. They just spend a lot of time outside the land for sin and various types of things. Again, they're exiled. God calls them back and returns them by grace yet again to the land. When they get there, he says this, return to me. Not return to the land, they're already there. He's basically saying, here's what the land symbolized. It symbolizes me. What I really want you to return to is, is me. I am the land. The, the land is not really that important, actually, geographically. It's a symbol. It made no difference if they came back from Babylon if they did not return spiritually to God. What good is it? What good? Again, to pull from the death motif, they'd still die. Until death's overcome, it tells us that all the little kind of mini remedies and mini wars that are won and mini salvations kind of given to the people are are foggy. They're prophetic. They're smaller. They're not the end. And so it's also then why in the gospels, sorry, the New Testament, we see this type of language used to refer to Christ in the gospel, the inheritance language, which is which is. land language. It says, Therefore, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant or testament that those who are called may receive the promised eternal land or inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from their sins. So I just want to make sure it's clear here if this passage is confusing, and it is, that what this is saying is that the way back to God, the way is paved by God's work and God's alone. He, he identifies the way, he, he paves the way, he makes the inheritance, he, he actually sends his son into the world to die so that our, our sins might be redeemed. That's the way back into the ultimate inheritance or land of God's presence, which is now spiritual. You know, it's, it's why we don't hop on a plane and fly to Jerusalem every Sunday. It's decentralized, it's not, that was just for an epoch or a time, it was... It was not meant to be ultimate. Now God is and his son are the land them itself. Uh, he Jesus Himself dictates what it means to be in God's presence. And we believe and trust in that, that type of death, that type of redemption. We look at the cross, that's how we're saved. And and so the broader answer then is it's where God is. That we see Abraham and Sarah and Joseph's value of this. We're actually what we're seeing kind of typically play out or symbolically play out is a picture of a Christian going all in on the gospel, kind of purchasing land there, uh, leaving their old lives behind fully, venturing into a new relationship with God through his son's sacrificial death. That's how we get this, this type of blessing. There's no other way. We can't just know God. We can't just vaguely enter into his presence. We have to go through Jesus' death which takes our sins away. That's, that's the way we get in. So, so Sarah's actions, Abraham's actions, Joseph's actions, kind of, um, it's, it's a great example, actually. It's, it's saying in life and in death, they wanted to be close to God. And as we New Testamentize that idea, what does that look like now? Wanting to be close to God, wanting to return to God looks one way. Getting the inheritance being in, the land, being in the new Garden of Eden with God looks one way. It looks like entering through a death that has occurred that redeems us through our sins, and that death is Jesus Christ, it's not ours. Not any man's or woman's, the death of the Son of God which atones for our sins. So that leads me then to this last thing, which, uh, or at least with this section, the, the big question is to why. The more specific answer, the broader is God is there, the more specific is they expect to be raised there and resurrected, this is the more obvious one from Hebrews 11. Uh, you know, when, it, when it comes to burial, not just travel to the land, but want to be buried in the land, there's this degree of permanence and eternality involved in the minds of these you know, Abraham and Sarah thing and then the Joseph thing later and many others who a lot of the patriarchs are buried there. Um, but it's as if they were actively believing this idea of physical land came along with it or pointed beyond it to... Uh, to really where God was, and that he was going to raise them up there. Uh, Hebrews 11 says, But as it is, the Old Testament saints desired a better country, that is, uh, a heavenly one. And so, again, there's a lot of hope uh, in the action of being buried in, um, in a certain place. And actually, let me just say it this way. Let me put it this way. If the resurrection of the body wasn't a thing, why would Joseph care about his bones being brought there? The resurrection of the, of the body, if Joseph didn't think that God was going to put my bones back together, create ligaments again out of the dust, put muscle and skin back over them to make my eyes moist again, to make my heart beat, to kind of put organs back in my body and make me walk physically on the new land with God again, if he didn't think that, what in the world is he doing? It's beyond unnecessary. It's ridiculous. They would ask your bones to be carried up you know, from a certain place to a new land uh, where, that God had gave you, right? What's the answer? If not, I believe God's going to put my body back together physically. Why would he request this? It's asking a lot of people. And it's asking a lot. It's actually a big deal. He would ask them to swear it. Swear before God, you will not leave my bones here. God is going to put me back together. Same thing with Abraham and Sarah, but with Joseph, it's just this more clear faith thing. Um, And and again, like on our side of things, um, well, it was for them too, of course, but if we believe that heaven in the clouds is it, this is all nonsense, right? It doesn't matter where we're buried or cremated or buried or ashes scattered or whatever, This earth isn't going to last. Our bodies aren't going to last. This is just a shell. What matters is our spirits living in heaven, right? That's kind of the way we'd think. That's the way that theology would kind of lead us to action about end-of-life matters and faith issues and expectancies about the future. But that's not what happens. Otherwise, Joseph wouldn't care about his bones. He's going to live in heaven with God forever, right? With his spirit. But he doesn't believe that. He believes in a better type of resurrection, a better type of hope, a resurrection of the body, not just the spirit. It's much more robust. It's, it's tangible. It's, it's physical. It's, it's like any of our loved ones dying, saying, make sure you bury me in this particular place because I expect to wake up there and it means a lot to me. Or it'd be like, a, maybe it's not so crazy for a couple dying together requesting to be to be buried with hand, their hands holding together. Maybe that's not so weird because maybe they they kind of expect or hope that they'll wake up together hand in hand someday. That God will put their bodies back together. That's the first thing they'll see is my spouse's hand. Do you think this way? Is this a new concept? Maybe it is. Maybe the idea of Joseph's bones being carried up is crazy. But for a person who believes in the resurrection, it makes all the sense in the world. A physical, bodily... Resurrection—it makes all the sense in the world, and not, not just a heavenly resurrection, but a physical body one, bodily one that actually resides here in a new earth with Jesus forever uh, someday. Much, much, much better hope. And actually, uh, John Calvin here, one of the 16th-century reformers, takes all this a step further and argues that the um, expectation of a physical bodily resurrection is what apparently kept Abraham from paralyzing grief in this passage. And that th- this is something we should emulate. So I'll just read his quote here. This is on Genesis 23, to be clear. He says, To feel no sadness at the contemplation of death is rather barbarism and stupor than fortitude of mind. Nevertheless, what Moses then adds about Abraham, that he rose up from the dead, is spoken in praise of his moderation. Whence Ambrose, who is another ancient commentator on this, prudently infers that we are taught by this example how perversely they act who occupy themselves in too much mourning for the dead. Now, if Abraham, at that time, assigned a limit to his grief and put a restraint on his feelings when the doctrine of the resurrection was yet obscure, we Christians now in this New Testament era are without excuse. This day, give the reins to impatience uh, since the most abundant consolation is supplied to us in the resurrection of Christ. So what what he's saying here is basically two things. Uh, The people of God who believe in a bodily resurrection mourn deeply, but also have a ton of hope. And they're not paralyzed by grief. And second, if Abraham modeled this, when the whole idea of resurrection was still very infantile, still undeveloped, if, if he modeled it, How much more should we who live in this epoch, in this New Testament era, on this side of the resurrection of Christ? How much more should we not be paralyzed by grief? How much more should we, to use his words, assign a limit to our grief and put a restraint on uh, paralyzing feelings, although we should still, and it's right to mourn deeply as Christ himself wept at the, the funeral of Lazarus. How much more, though, should we, on this side of Christ's resurrection, um, who expect a physical bodily resurrection, um, not grieve without hope. And that's one of my first couple of uh, <clears throat> concluding principles here. The uh, first is this. I think this passage embodies this well narratively and to pull from Calvin. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. And I know a lot of you are in a, not all of you are in the same place. All of you will die. Lest Christ comes back first, I will die. All of you before that will probably face familial death or deaths with friends and brothers and sisters in the church, and it's all around us. Some of you even now are facing the prospect of death and with loved ones or um, yourselves. The Bible says, Don't grieve as those who have no hope. In other words, don't grieve as non Christians do. Grieve as a Christian. 1 uh, Thessalonians 4 says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. This is speaking to a Christian church in the first century. Christians, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So again, it's, it's the same idea. It's, this is... Kind of a crazy way to act and talk, to call dead people ones who sleep. Remember Jesus did that once in his ministry? There's a dead girl and he walked in and said, actually, she's just sleeping. And people laughed. They mocked. Are you insane, Jesus? But for him, sleep was actually more indicative of what death is because he knows that that a physical bodily resurrection is what awaits all. And, And he brought that into being right there in that moment, but that girl died again someday. The ultimate hope is the final resurrection, which we all still await for. But regardless, he talked crazily. He talked in an unworldly manner about death being like sleep. And so here it's the same thing. If heaven is the end goal, then sleep is kind of a strange thing because the body actually does stay in the ground forever. It it is eternal. And death actually wins. But if a physical bodily resurrection uh, occurs like it did for Christ... His actual body was put together, right? And he's the first fruits of ours. It's indicative of what will be true for those of us who believe in him. If that's the case, then we can talk about it more in terms of sleep. But regardless, here, this is what he says. I want you to know these things so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Grieve, but not as a non-Christian. One who goes to a funeral with an open casket and says, that person will wake up again and walk this earth again someday. My hope is not that they're in heaven with God alone. That's a, that's a great hope. And it's fine to find some solace there. Our Christian hope, our distinctly biblical hope, is that they will wake up, they're just asleep, they will wake up and walk this earth again someday. No matter what happens to bodies in the ground, whether they just decay a little or turn to bones or turn to actual dust, God will resurrect them. He's a master at it. And the scriptures teach nothing less. The second thing is building on this is uh, the true work of the Christian is to go all in on the death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ, which, again, I think this is a tough passage, and it's very foggy, but I, I think if there's one thing we're seeing as an example here to follow as Christians with the idea that the land of Canaan is typical of just the gospel in the Old Testament is that these two, in death and life, and Joseph later, these three, I guess, they went all in. They really believed it was true. When God talked about overcoming death, making promises, they really, really believed it. And it made their life look kind of silly and strange to people, but they really acted on it. They really made decisions in light of it. You know, so it, for us, if, if hope in the resurrection led Joseph to say to people, swear to me you'll take my bones with you and bury them again in the land, how much more should it lead us to do wacky stuff in the world's eyes? We just will. We'll be strange. We'll talk in terms of like death being sleep and we won't mourn quite as paralytically as um, non-Christians do. Is that a word? Hopefully you know what I'm saying there. Um, We'll be less paralyzed. Um, The world mocks and, but, you know, again, the death and resurrection of Christ and the inheritance we have with God It's everything and it's going to invariably make us value different things in life and invest in things we otherwise wouldn't and maybe just take a deep breath amidst all the pain and say to our souls or to others, it's going to be okay because death is not the end. Maybe it makes us not value our life that much anymore because we're so enthralled with Jesus and because we know he'll make our battered bodies better again in the future uh, like, like Paul says that in, in the book of Acts, he says um, I've, I come to this point, I'm paraphrasing, but come to this point in my life where I, value, I don't value my life anymore. I value the spreading of the gospel and I'm beating my body into submission for the sake of starting churches, for the sake of encouraging Christians, for the sake of killing sin, for the sake of ministry and local church base which is what we're all called to. I'm beating my body into submission and it, it makes us do that. It makes us treat ourselves a little bit less care, maybe, because we know God's going to put us back together Uh, anyway. It's, so stuff like that. And so I just want to, I want to end with a few questions here along those lines, and and then I'll pray, and we'll we'll close here. But the question is this, is, um, is this really what you're going all in on? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Is the you see him as your inheritance with God and what he's done for you, not what you can do for him. Is Jesus Christ crucified and raised dictating how you spend your time? Maybe how you spend your money like it did for Abraham? How you say goodbye to your old life like it did for Abraham and Sarah? How you become more optimistic and hopeful than you formerly were? Maybe even how you think about being buried and... I'm going to do a beta over, like, burial versus cremation, but I just encourage you, whatever you do at the end-of-life decisions, uh, if you're cremated, still consider getting buried uh, rather than, rather than having, having your ashes scattered because of what that symbolizes. Or, or at least with your last dying breath, expect to be remade with your body, regardless of what happens to your body and your loved ones do with your body. What, are you thinking like these people? Are you thinking like Joseph when you talk about your dead body, you know? And are you thinking about, are you thinking like Abraham and Sarah when you think about burial and cremation and where you want to be buried or at least what, what's the last thing you think, you know? Is it leaving my body behind forever or I, I just expect this to be a long, long, long sleep? That I wake up from someday and stretch and walk around anew in a glorified body with Christ forever and all my loved, loved ones in the church and in a new earth and where everything's clear again and everything's more colorful and there's no more death or sickness or dying or pain or shame. But it's here. Like those things, we should think about these things. Um, but anyway, maybe is Jesus Christ and him crucified? Does it dictate how you preach the gospel more than tell people to be good? That's, maybe I'll just end with that one. That's, you know, one of Joseph's last thoughts here in his life was, carry up my bones rather than I hope I was good enough. His last thought was the end of his life, make sure you carry up my bones. It was resurrection focused. It was hope in God focused. It was faith in God focused, not, man, I hope I was good enough to earn salvation with God. And so if we're all in on this and what God does for us to to save us from our sins, um, it's going to just dictate how we preach the gospel more to people, rather than tell people Jesus wants you to do this with your life. Make sure you're fasting more. We're not going to care as much about that because we've gone all we've we've bought we've purchased land, the figurative land that is Christ in and Him crucified. We've we've invested. We've gone all in. We said God has saved me from my sins, not me, not another person. It's not about law or morality. It's about the resurrection. It's about the death of Christ which atones for our sin and gives us an inheritance with God again. And that's the grace I want to leave you with here that I think you're seeing Abraham and Sarah embody foggily and Joseph and that all the more we as Christians should, if we really go all in on this, we're just going to be preachers of good news, heralders of grace much more than we are telling just people how to live their lives in in a good manner. Um, Goodness comes, of course, but down the river, uh, not at the headwaters. And so, um, there's lots more questions we could ask, but all those questions framed around, is Christ crucified and raised dictating your life and how you think and act and how crazy you are to the world? Um, Just think about that as we uh, close here. So, let me pray. God, thank you for a pretty crazy passage. Uh, It's in the Bible. It's something you want us to see for a lot of reasons that maybe we talked about and maybe some other things we didn't yet get to today. Your word is endlessly rich. We've been learning that in this series. It's almost unendlessly tappable in terms of theological truth. But we do see, though, God, how death is a problem and Abraham was not happy when it happened. It's a problem. It led to mourning and tears and the process of burial and the buying of land and And all that end-of-life stuff, it led to that, which is not a fun thing. It's a a mournful, problematic thing. And it's something you remedy. Uh, Not our goodness, but you alone. You make that path back to yourself through your son's death and resurrection. So help us to believe in that, to believe the gospel today. God is good. He has come to our rescue. He has called us to a new land. He has invited us into relationship with him. And... um, rather than set us on a moralistic quest to find it ourselves. And so, God, help us to be hopers in a true resurrection, uh, rather than a, kind of a cheap sellout version that a lot, of, a lot of us were born into or believe that it's just about heaven. Uh, it's, it's about our bodies being remade. It's in the spirit of Joseph saying, move my bones here so I can wake up there. I want to be in that land when I wake up. Uh, help us to think similarly um, about maybe end-of-life issues, but also just now as we think about our bodies and how to use them for the kingdom and how we spend our money, how we evangelize people more than moralizing them, uh, and a whole slew of other things, God. Just uh, prompt us, Spirit, with things we should be taking from this today, which is it's a wonderful passage. Thank you. It's in your word. Help us to respond uh, with, with uh, thankfulness for your grace today as we leave here and through this last song. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Let's stand as we...